I V M. He was a great king whose enemies trembled with fright when they gazed upon him. But even his power waned before Samudragupta, who extended his power to the edges of the ocean. And so his daughter, who in her father's palace had been worshipped as a goddess, who had grown up like a flame in which abundant ghee had been poured, was sent to the court of the Guptas. When the Gupta Emperor Chandragupta II finally shattered the power of the Shakas of Gujarat, he happily took all the credit. And if not for the words of his remarkable daughter Prabhavati Gupta, whose name very appropriately means luminous since her father was named after the moon, we would still believe his propaganda. But Prabhavati has rescued us from the dark ambiguities of history. You see, just as her male relatives left records boasting about their grandfathers and their fathers and their sons, Prabhavati, almost uniquely in Indian history, had the resources and inclination to boast about her mother, and her daughter did so as well. The words that you just heard were commissioned by these remarkable women and tell the story of Prabhavati's mother. This, today, is a telling of the story of the Empress Prabhavati Gupta, daughter and granddaughter of kings and emperors, mother and grandmother to queens and empresses. I'm Anirudh Kanisati, and welcome back to Echoes of India, a history podcast. In a history as vast and varied as that of South Asia, one of the most irritating things is the fact that it often comes across as a succession of rather unpleasant kings constantly attacking each other and bragging about it. Since you've been listening to Echoes so far, you've probably figured out by now that no, history is actually much more than that. It's an unspeakably grand process that is shaped by every human who ever lived, that's constantly unfolding all around us, that we are shaping right now as we speak. While the rich and powerful play their games and lose their elections and have books and movies made about them, you and I leave our traces on social media, in the things we do, in the minds of the people that we meet. In the chaotic rivers of causation and human networks, we'll simply never know how impactful our actions are, but we can be damn sure that they'll shape our present reality and thus shape our collective futures. The same applies to most of human history. Except most of humanity have never had access to the materials you'd need to leave a lasting trace that can be discovered centuries after. And the utter tragedy of our past is how few people outside the circles of power actually manage to leave those traces. Even if they shaped history in critical ways, we'll simply never know because they didn't leave a record of it. Maybe they composed a poem which they'd handed down to their descendants until their descendants died out in a random natural disaster. Maybe they only ever wrote one copy and it was burned when their city was sacked. Kings could issue inscriptions on stones, sure, have stuff carved into temples, have poems written about them that became bestsellers and that nobody ever forgot. But it was very, very rare for queens, who also played pivotal roles in our history, but usually behind the scenes, to have access to these same kinds of resources. So when you meet a queen like Prabhavati Gupta, who, as I said, did have those resources, you can't help but get really, really excited. What was her life like? Whom did she see, speak to, coerce, cajole, rule over? Whose deaths was she responsible for? I mean, she's a royal, right? Of course, her hands had to be a little bloody, right? She wasn't a saint. How did she see the people around her? So many questions. So let's get you some answers. As a quick heads up, though, I'm going to be naming a lot of Indian dynasties. But hey, if you can remember the relations between the Starks and Lannisters and Targaryens and Baratheons and all the other made-up Western houses in Game of Thrones, I'm totally sure you can remember these actual dynasties as well. 
Now, in the last episode of this podcast, I mentioned the Nagas of Central India, and of course, we're already way too familiar with the Guptas. Now, I'm going to introduce you to another dynasty, to me at least, one of the most interesting dynasties in our history, because among other reasons, they have such a delightful name. They're going to pop up again and again this season. So, say hello to the Vakataka dynasty of the Deccan. If you pronounce Vakataka correctly on the first try, I'll buy you a nice plate of some chatpada chicken tikka. Now, marriage alliances and networks were super important to ancient Indian kingdoms. In episode 1, we saw how Samadra Gupta's mom came from a powerful tribal republic in the Himalayan foothills, which helped him with the resources and connections he needed for his early campaigns. Samudra Gupta was so grateful for this connection that he refers to himself as Lichavaya, son of the Lichavi, and also Lichavi Dauhitra, the daughter's son of the Lichavi, referring to his maternal grandfather, perhaps the lord of Pataliputra. As the Lichavis were to Samudra Gupta, the Nagas were to the Vakatakas. His exact contemporary, the Vakataka king Rudrasena I, describes himself as a Dauhitra of the Nagas. Now, the Vakatakas are one of the few Indian states to ever be properly based in Vidarbha, in the Ganga plains, which you might already have heard of if you've read the Jungle Book. Their dynasty was much older and more prestigious than that of the Guptas, though. Their story started with a conqueror of the tribes of the Vindhya mountains, a chap with the highly appropriate title of Vindhya Shakti, power of the Vindhyas. Since then, they had helped further encourage state formation, urbanization and agriculture in the region, while also, like all their neighbours, fighting with everybody else around them until they dominated the northwest Deccan. This was about a hundred years or so before Samudra Gupta showed up at the head of a vast political-military network that he'd created in the Ganga plains. Predictably enough, once this fellow showed up, everything got wrecked. Of course, our old buddy Harishena was quite glib about the whole affair. His extraordinary valour is evident through the forceful extermination of the kings Rudradeva, Matila, Nagadatta, Chandravarman, Ganapati Naga, Nagasena, Achyutnandin and Balavarman. And he has made all the kings of the forest kingdoms into his servant. Notice how many Nagas there were in that brag? A full one-third of the kings that Samudra Gupta is supposed to have slaughtered outright was some variety of Naga. Maybe it was generally a common name, but we do have coins indicating that powerful tribal kingdoms with ruling dynasty called Naga controlled vast stretches of agricultural and forest land in west-central India, which would explain why both the Vakatikas and the Guptas were interested in them. It seems that the Nagas were happy to peacefully intermarry with the Vakatakas because they shared geopolitical interests. But when it came to the violent, upstart Guptas, marriage seemed to be the result of defeat. And as we've heard from the daughter she eventually had, the princess Kubera Naga was torn away from her family and sent as a hostage to the Gupta court. What would it have been like for her? Torn away all of a sudden, perhaps no more than a teenager, knowing that she might never see her home again, knowing that she was marrying into this huge, ambitious, violent family that had terrified the whole of North India. By this time, Samudra Gupta already had many wives, some sent to his court to seal alliances, whereas some, like Kubera Naga, were hostages. She would have lived with all these women, many of whom came from completely different backgrounds and may not even have spoken the same language in a separate part of the palace called the Antahpura or the Srinivesha, literally the inner city or women's residences where the king's wives, courtesans, dancing girls and all their attendants had their quarters guarded by eunuchs or old men and women to ensure that, in Kumkum Roy's words, nobody infringed upon the king's reproductive rights. 
City is an appropriate word for royal palaces, which tended to be massive establishments employing hundreds of staff, with people in and out at all times of the day, home to vast manicured gardens with pleasure pavilions and peacocks and fragrant trees, with blocks of buildings for the king's wives and his many daughters and sons. Samudra Gupta is recorded to have had dozens. I really do not want to get into reconstructing the guy's sex life, given that not all of the women in his palace were there voluntarily, and he doesn't seem like the type to have taken no for an answer. Here's what a contemporary manual has to say about what the king got up to at night after spending a morning receiving and exchanging gifts with his wives according to their rank. Be warned, it's not pleasant. In the afternoon, when the king has risen after a siesta, the keeper of the roster informs him of the lady whose turn it is to be with him that night, the one who had the previous turn and any who are in their fertile period. The servants of each follow the keeper and present to the king containers of ointment stamped with the women's seal rings. The one picked up by him indicates whose turn it will be. All the ladies of the harem are honored appropriately, but they do not go out, nor do women from outside come in. So the activity inside remains undisturbed. According to the upper class men who are writing these manuals, royal women were apparently not allowed any agency in sexual matters. Even their menstrual cycles were tracked by the king's staff, which often employed older women for this purpose. Disturbing as this may be, I think it's very important for us to keep in mind that palaces, which we often glamorize as utterly heavenly places where everyone was rich and happy, could be profoundly unequal and dangerous places for women. That said, it's also important to remember that even so, the lives of courtly women were still a lot more comfortable than those of the average South Asian at this point. They could expect monthly stipends and were generally free to spend them as they saw fit. Though of course there was a hierarchy there, paralleling the hierarchy of kings on top of which Samudra Gupta was perched. At the very top were the chief queens, the Mahadevis, who had the closest contact with the king and received stipends that could, theoretically, run to tens of thousands of gold coins per month. They were waited upon literally hand and foot. I once read a novel from this period where a hero comes across a queen in the wild and tells us something on the lines of, your feet, which would always be in someone's lap, are bruised by walking on the soft grass. Despite the ostensible material comfort though, no queen could ever take her position for granted. One did not simply become a Mahadevi by marrying the king first. It was a title that was ruthlessly contested, never set in stone and judiciously rewarded. You had to have your networks, both inside and outside the palace, to ascend the ranks to become a senior wife. You had to be willing to discredit and get rid of rivals, and manuals like the Kama Sutra, far from being only about kinky sex, also mention strategies for women to earn the king's favor with methods like flattery and bribery, sama and dana, the same tools that political manuals recommended that kings used to keep their vassals in line. That some women were able to turn this situation to their advantage is, I think, a sign of remarkable intelligence, grit and determination. Kubera Naga certainly seems to have been one of these women. In the first place, her husband Chandragupta doesn't seem to have been first in line for the throne. Instead, as I mentioned in the last episode, the actual heir apparent was Ramagupta, the imperial governor of the province of Vidisha. And coincidentally, Vidisha was also where the Nagas had originally been based and probably still maintained a lot of influence as we'll see later in the season. It's very, very possible that she played a major role in ensuring that her natal family supported her husband's bid for the throne. Again, 
just as a quick recap when samudra gupta died ramagupta declared himself the new maharaja adhiraja from his base in vidisha and seemed to be doing okay for a year or two until he decided to attack the shakas and got totally screwed it seems that his younger half brother then attacked him murdered him married his wife dhruva devi and then made himself emperor that might have been the politically astute thing to do since she like kubera naga is certain to have had powerful political connections however it was considered quite a dick move even by the standards of the time and chandragupta got an awfully bad reputation for it because even hundreds of years later the story was still very well known in the deccan and was still being held up as an exemplar of greed and betrayal which is quite funny considering that this is the same man who built udayagiri made himself out to be vishnu on earth and adopted the title of devagupta meaning god protected but also literally the gupta who is a god it shows us that historical figures can often acquire these legendary reputations that don't do justice to what i call for lack of better words the complexity and upness of real life so what did queen kubera naga think of this situation did she genuinely care who was in his bedroom or did she see her husband as merely a means to an end we'll probably never know either way they did seem to have a productive marriage and in a culture which often saw infertile women as being inauspicious that gave kubera naga an additional source of leverage in the gupta court Now among their offspring was a little girl whose given name rather rudely was Munda probably because she didn't have too much hair when she was born she was very fair and likely extremely pretty the spoiled but precocious child of an ambitious and ruthless couple this girl would have been raised as a true princess perhaps never experiencing the danger her mother had in her early life she would be educated trained to rule in arts and poetry and politics and sex taught from birth how to command so others would obey prepared for a political marriage and secure in the knowledge that her mother and father were powerful enough that she would never be involuntarily torn away from them which is more than you could say of a lot of chandragupta's vassals daughters really this girl was of course prabhavati gupta and this is her daughter telling you the story of her birth and marriage After a number of sons had been born to them in succession famous and adorned with virtues a daughter called Munda resembling the luster of the moon was born as their younger sister at all times the conduct of this deva chandragupta was perfect this sovereign gave his daughter to the illustrious rudrasena a mine of virtues By the late 4th century as Chandragupta set his eyes on the shakas of Gujarat and moved his base almost permanently to central India the vakatakas must have figured out that they had better ally with the more powerful guptas to make sure that they didn't end up as the collateral damage and so the vakataka king rudrasena the second married prabhavati gupta and they soon had three sons and at least one daughter and then unexpectedly rudrasena died imagine her position All of a sudden she was stranded in a hostile court where the only claim to authority that she actually had was derived from the fact that she was a regent for her sons. Her closest immediate political ally, her husband was dead. She had to defend her own interests, those of the distant Gupta court and also those of her children. But not only did Prabhavati survive, she thrived. She slipped into the role of queen regent practically wearing the vakataka crown as a scholar puts it with what seems to be an unbelievable degree of self assurance part of that may have been because she knew that any rebellion against her would be crushed by the immense gupta army commanded by her father or her half brothers with them behind her she took the vakatakas in hand touring the kingdom just like a king would visiting the gupta province of vidisha probably studying her father's work at udayagiri and using a similar aesthetic and political concept to further strengthen the claims of the vakatakas by building temples 
on one of those temples was the inscription which her daughter would leave, which we've been hearing excerpts from so far. In the last episode, I mentioned that the most striking Gupta innovation, at least in terms of kingship, was the identification of the king with Vishnu or Varaha, the idea that he's the lord of the earth, that he has the right to redistribute land. Well, here's an actual inscription of Prabhavati Gupta. The empress herself speaks. The illustrious Prabhavati Gupta, born of the illustrious Mahadevi Kubera Naga, who is a fervent devotee of the god Vishnu, who was the chief queen of the illustrious Rudra Sena, the Maharaja of the Vakatakas, who is the mother of the Yuvraj, the illustrious Divakar Sena, having announced her good health, commands the householders of this village as follows. We have donated this village for the sake of our religious merit to the Acharya Chanalaswamin. So cool that a queen is doing this, isn't it? Let's just gloss over the fact that she's just announced to a bunch of people who had probably never even heard of her before that, that they all now belong to some old fart called Chanala Swamin who was friendly with the court. And this donation was likely executed through the threat of force. The point is, by claiming the authority to give away land like this, Prabhavati wasn't just claiming to be a regent. She was implying, and not very subtly, that she was a god on earth, a king in her own right, just as her father was. And I can't help but feel that, unfair and privileged though her voice may be, given her position in space and time, it's pretty damn badass. Even aside from her masterful propaganda, Prabhavati also knew how to play politics. It seems that the Vakataka line suffered from some kind of congenital disease, which killed her husband young and also killed the heir apparent before he was old enough to take the throne. And powerful factions in the court seem to have blamed her for this. Her younger son, Pravarasena, the new heir apparent, utterly hated the degree of influence that his mother had and the number of Gupta loyalists she must have had on her staff. In the inscription we just heard a couple of minutes ago, she refers to the Vakartikas as Maharajas, but the Guptas as Maharaja Adhirajas, implying a clear status differential which would certainly have pissed off a lot of Vakartika loyalists. But Prabhavati was playing the wider game. She carried the blood of the Guptas and the Nagas, and she knew that binding them with the Vakartikas could renew the old alliance the Vakartikas and the Nagas already had and lead to the creation of a very powerful and stable dynastic coalition that could resist very considerable shocks, even if the Guptas dominated this relationship. And so she married her daughter to her half-brother, the Gupta prince Ghatotkacha, one of Chandragupta's youngest sons and the governor of Vidisha. Her elder half-brother Kumara Gupta, whose royal bottom then occupied the Gupta throne, had apparently not yet named a crown prince, and perhaps Ghatotkacha was seen as a viable candidate. Of course, this seems rather icky to modern sensibilities, and it was technically illegal in that time and place for an uncle to marry his niece, but then it was also illegal for a widowed queen to rule like Prabhavati did. To quote the great scholar Hans Baka, it's a fact of life in India as elsewhere that power politics remains within the precincts of the law only as long as it suits its aims. Unfortunately, one law that even Prabhavati was powerless against was the onward march of time. Pravarasena eventually became old enough to reign in his own right and chafed at the degree of control his mother continued to exercise. Towards the ending of her life, she may genuinely have started to worry about religious merit, making more donations of land and money, creating connections to landed elites. 
Perhaps she was doing this because she had a hard time accepting Pravarasi as authority, considering she had probably wiped his bum as a baby, or if we're being honest, watched one of her maids wipe his bum as a baby. But that sort of authority, as I mentioned, was usually a prerogative of the king, which only pissed off Pravarasena even more. He was no fan of the Sanskrit that the Guptas used and actually wrote a Prakrit retelling of a part of the Ramayana, where the king Vibhishana mourns his dead elder brother Ravana. In the Ramayana, Vibhishana allies himself with the god king Rama against his brother, the demon king of Lanka, and is made the new king after Rama kills Ravana. Very tellingly, Pravarasena makes Vibhishana lament the fact that he's the only brother left, and he says that he doesn't know if he'd be happier if he died with his brothers instead of allying with a foreign conqueror, no matter how righteous. Could this be taken as a boy mourning for the male Vakataka figures that he looked up to? That his mind transformed into these distant heroes because he needed someone to contrast with a mother's family that he saw as all too close villains. He ordered a new palace built, just five kilometers from the city where his elderly mother lived. He patronized Shiva in opposition to his mother's Vishnu worshipping ways, calling him Parama Maheshwara, foremost devotee of Shiva, not Parama Bhagavata, foremost devotee of Vishnu. And as we'll see, he was not pleased at all that his mother gave his sister away in marriage to a Gupta, whatever her reasons may have been. Prabhavati's grand political project, if we can call it that, would come crashing down because of the same thing that makes you and I identify with her story 1600 years later, human nature. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's a story for another episode. Until then, Vakataka forever. I want to hear what you think of Echoes. Keep in touch with me on Twitter at Akanisetti, that's A-K-A-N-I-C-T-T-I, or tag me in an Instagram story. Just search for my name. If you like this podcast, you could also leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM Podcast app or IVMPodcast.com. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well, at IVM Podcasts.